our topic today is what happens at the beginning of a case. When we're thinking about compensability, when we're thinking about accepting or denying a case, we're thinking about investigations, and we're thinking about how we uh, tee up the cases for specific defense scenarios, including occupational exposures versus traumatic claims. Uh, my, of course, disclaimer is uh, this presentation is for instructional purposes only and not legal advice as to any particular matter. Today, we're going to talk about what you do when you're accepting a case, uh, what kind of uh, documentation we're filing with the New York Workers' Compensation Board, and I'm going to touch on a foundational issue, which people sometimes don't think of it as that foundational, like average weekly wage, but it's a huge issue in New York workers' compensation defense uh, because there is so much litigation about that. So we're going to talk about that. Now, you should be able to reach uh, the handouts that I've put into today's uh, materials. Uh, I know it's a lot of materials there, but as you go through that, you, that lesson book contains some exemplars that I'm going to be referring to throughout the presentation. We're going to look at the uh, form C-3, that's an employee claim form, a wage statement, a first report of injury, and a pre-hearing conference statement. All right, so before we dive into this presentation, a little bit about our overall litigation philosophy here. What are we doing? Why? What's, what is our approach to defending New York workers' compensation cases? Well, your goal is to get in control of these cases. The entire system is designed so that employers and carriers are not in the driver's seat. So we think our job uh, is to help you get back into control of these cases. Um, there are things you can do as an employer uh, to, for example, have a great return to work program. Uh, cooperate, please. Uh, identify decision makers and identify stakeholders uh, so that we can work together to get this case to closure as fast as possible. Uh, part of my role here is to explain the system. Uh, I know that sounds strange, but New York's got such a unique and uniquely challenging system uh, for employers and carriers that a big part of my job is just to explain, like, how does the system work and what are the biases of the people in the system? Um, of course, everything we should be doing for you is to reduce exposure, and we want to focus on case closure. So lots of ways to learn here. Uh, thanks for attending the webinars. I remind everybody that there are handbooks for all the jurisdictions we practice in on our website. We also have a podcast that uh, we release three times a month. And if you're interested in something next level, like 201 level, uh, please consider my partner Christian's podcast. It's called Third Fridays. And the intention there is to have sort of an elevated discussion on some of these um, topics that affect us in this community. Also, you're invited. Uh, January 23rd through the 27th, I am running an 11-hour course spread out over four days. It's basically Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday afternoons. Uh, it's three hours at a clip, and we are going through soup to nuts how to defend a New York workers' compensation case. Um, we are an accredited continuing legal education provider in the state of New York, and this presentation is accredited. So if you're an attorney and you're considering taking this presentation, you will get 11 hours of uh, accreditation, including an hour of ethics credit. So there's that's a lot of um, uh, time. If there's an attorney you think might benefit from this presentation, uh, you can share with them um, the registration link. It's also on our firm website. So uh, what is Lois Law Firm all about? What do we do here? Our mission, vision, and values. So our vision is to serve the top 100 carriers and employers nationally. 
and to be the best place to work for our teammates. Our mission day in and day out is to take control and stay in control of these workers' compensation cases and drive them to closure. And how do you do that? How do you have, we have over 50 attorneys here. We have well over 100 staff. How, how do we keep everybody aligned on that mission? And the answer is uh, we are a values-based organization. Um, our first value is creativity. Every case that we defend for you, we want to defend it in a new way, a creative way, out of the box. We're going to try new things. Uh, we want to be your advocates. Okay, We're here to win for you, not just to simply stop the bleeding. That's not enough of a mission. Um, we want to be professional, so there is going to be a balance. I think of us as pretty aggressive litigators, but of course the boundary there is going to be the rules of professional conduct and the rules of ethics. And of course, we are going to take direction from our clients. And the last uh, value, the fourth value, is service. Um, you know, without clients, attorneys are Ronin, or worse, law school professors. We take our clients seriously, and we know that we need to be responsive to our clients. So these are the four values that we live here, and it's how we serve our clients externally, but internally, it's how the firm is also organized. So uh, let's jump in uh, to our today's topic which is case foundation, which is what should we be thinking about uh, when that New York workers' compensation case first gets assembled or indexed, when that loss first occurs? What are we thinking about? Please note that in this jurisdiction, uh, the claimant is afforded five presumptions, and these presumptions are very, very uh, significant, and they really do color the way that we defend cases for you. So the first presumption, of course, is that the claim comes within the provisions of this chapter. Just to put all this into plain English, what does that mean? Uh, it falls within the provisions of this chapter. Well, it simply means that, yes, this is a New York workers' compensation claim. In other words, so it's presumed, commensability is presumed. The second thing is that notice was given to the employer. Uh, and New York has a very interesting um, notice, series of notice requirements. Uh, does require written notice within 30 days or uh, constructive knowledge later. Uh, that the injury, the third presumption, the injury was not occasioned by the willful intent of the employee to harm themselves, right? So there, this is not an intentional self-harm. Number four, that the injury did not result solely from the intoxication of the injured employee while they were on duty. And does everybody see where the weasel lawyer word is in there? The word solely, right? So the claimant who falls off your scaffold, who's drunk as a skunk, their blood alcohol content is a four, simply has to say, well, yeah, Judge, I was really drunk that day I was working up there on that scaffold, but it was the alcohol uh, impairment combined with also I was really tired because I didn't sleep well the night before. So now the in injury is not solely occasioned by the intoxication, and now that would be a compensable case. And the fifth presumption, and this is an important presumption in this jurisdiction, and this fifth presumption is that, uh, yes, uh, anything written in a medical report is presumed to be prima facie evidence of the uh, matter contained within. In other words, uh, hearsay does not apply to stuff that's inside medical records. Okay, so that's that fifth presumption. Now, uh, to dive into this topic, we're going to talk about a made-up case I have, and that's what's included in your materials today, which is just a copy of an employee claim form. We made this up, and we made up a story, and we made up a guy's name, and his name is Drake Von Train. And Drake Von Train says that while taking the Rubbermaid garbage can to the compactor at the back of the truck, I strained my left shoulder and the garbage can tore and pierced my left bicep. Okay, so when you're confronted with these employee claims, they should be on a claim form. 
We do argue and, and litigate, actually, that the claimant has to complete the claim form. And the reason for that is they actually have to sign these documents. And they're useful documents because the employee claim form requires the claimant to state uh, if they've ever had prior injuries to the same body part before. So very important thing uh, in terms of our overall investigation. So now our decision points are going to be, do we accept or deny this, uh, dispute this claim? Um, is the claimant losing time? Do we have to pay wage replacement? And what happens if there's no supporting medical? In other words, the claimant has simply disappeared from your work site uh, and you're stuck with uh, trying to defend a case in that kind of posture. Well, it happens a lot and uh, it happens so much. Uh, and our t in the past, we used to say, well, you don't pay them until they produce some medical. You know, they're out of work note or something. Uh, but the rules have changed. Um, and Section 300.22 of the New York Code uh, states that we do have to make payments even when there is no medical provided to you within 18 days of the disability or 10 days after you have knowledge of the disability. So this really applies to the claimant who has simply disappeared from your workplace and you, you think it could be workers' comp, but you don't know. And Or they claim, I got injured and I can't come to work and I have a doctor's note, but then they don't produce that doctor's note, okay? And unfortunately, uh, this puts us in a bad position where you could be penalized and the penal penalty could be $300 uh, plus the, any payment that would be applied to a late payment, which is 20% of any late payment. And so this really puts employers and carriers at a disadvantage in this jurisdiction because the person could simply disappear from the workplace. They get a call from the supervisor a few days ago, a few days later, says, hey, where are you? You haven't showed up. They go, oh, I got hurt uh, last time I was on the workplace. And this puts the employer in the position of, well, under the payer compliance rules, I have to just start paying them, and they have this opportunity to produce medical within the first 30 days. So what we do, and the way the workaround typically is, um, we'll pay them at the mild rate. And the mild rate up until this week was only $150 a week. Uh, that's the minimum rate of compensation was $150 a week. So you pay them at this minimum rate. Now, unfortunately, the minimum rate in New York as of January 1st, 2024, just went up to $275 a week, which means now paying them at the minimum rates actually uh, within two weeks will far exceed the penalty that you could get uh, for raising a late controversy. So again, that would be a decision point for you as the employer or carrier to consider. But be mindful of this 1810 rule, this payer compliance rules that are currently in place. Now, accepted or deny the case, right? So now you've you received these lost facts. You might be paying this person irrespective of whether they have medical, but really you've got to be thoughtful about, hey, do I want to accept or deny this case? Now, statistically, 85% of all cases are accepted. Uh, so, you know, 10 to 15% are going to be disputed. And the reason I throw out that um, statistic is just because if you're out there and you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, I dispute a higher percentage of my cases than that. Okay, there might be a reason why. You might have a problem employee population, particularly the low wage population. Uh, there might be a seasonality to your employment. All those types of things might come into um, play as to why you would accept or deny some of these cases. Uh, but there is entitlement to wage continuation if lost time exceeds the waiting period. The waiting period in New York is seven days. Once uh, uh, lost time has exceeded 15 days, uh, then you go back in and you fill in that first two weeks. That, I'm sorry, that first seven days. Um, now, this is subject uh, to wage uh, to maximums and minimums, and those change every year. The minimum just went up for the first time since 2013. It is now $275 a week. What else happens when the case is accepted? Well, 
hopefully medical treatment, if it hasn't already begun, begins. Uh, hopefully the person is accepting and, and, and seeking medical care. Now, not sure what to do? Well, we have an intake procedure here at Lois to help you with that. Uh, we will do triage on your cases. So uh, our clients are trained. We have an intake email. It is newfile at loisllc.com. Send your information to us. We'll do a quick conflict check. And then generally, we'll send you compensability decision and advice. And again, this is legal advice the same day. This is whether or not uh, we open a file for you. We are willing to give you this compensability determination after we've done a quick conflict check. It should only take a few minutes. Um, and this is so that you get an advisory opinion or uh, that you can use to paper up your file and protect yourself. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're denying a case in New York, there should be a valid reason to deny a case. Uh, if you do say, okay, go ahead, we want to accept, uh, you know, we want to deny this matter, accept this matter, but we want you to defend it, you know, then we will go through our next steps, which are um, sending you an acknowledgement letter and a, we'll file a letter of representation with the Workers' Compensation Board. We'll serve relevant discovery on opposing party. And of course, we will then, um, you know, uh, review uh, the case for the potential for third party recovery and send a Section 29 lien letter. Now, denied cases. Denied cases take up a lot of our docket and our workload here at Lois LLC because that's what we're doing. We're litigating these defended cases. Now, imagine in our example case, the Drayfon train case, the employer decided to challenge the compensability of the claim. So what are the steps for that? First, you've got to come to that decision. And again, this should not be reached lightly. Um, we should not be just denying every case. Another thing is, you know, the, um, the employer carrier who says, like, I need time to investigate. Uh, what should I do? Well, generally speaking, uh, hopefully you're doing a great investigation at the time of the loss. But if not, if you didn't have that opportunity, uh, dispute or deny or challenge or controvert the case. All those words mean the same thing, by the way. Um, and then do your investigation while that denial is pending. That's okay. Uh, also, please note, you can always withdraw a denial. That's not a challenge in this jurisdiction at all. In fact, uh, even when you go to a pre-hearing conference, even when you, there's been some um, litigation in the case, withdrawing a denial because your investigation has revealed additional information is always a valid reason to do that. So that's okay. There should be no penalty for that. What happens next is that the uh, carrier or your third-party administrator files a Freud or Schroy, a first report of injury or subsequent report of injury, 04, with denial codes affixed to it. Now, this is an important moment in the case. And unfortunately, according to the court rules, I can't do this for you, right? An attorney is not allowed uh, to file a first report of injury of any type, whether it's an 01 or an 00, accepting the case. Uh, or a subsequent report of injury. We're not allowed to file this for you. So it has to be done by either the carrier or your TPA. Uh, and that has to contain these correct denial codes. And those denial codes will then allow the court to set up the case as a controverted or disputed case. And will set up the case for a pre-hearing conference if the claimant uh, obtains medical. Um, now, our best practice on this, and this is you know the best practice in the entire state is, File that pre-hearing conference uh, statement, which is required under the rules, the same time you're filing your denial or as soon thereafter as you possibly can. And the reason for that is even if you have not completed your investigation, it is 
imperative that a pre-hearing conference statement be filed to present and preserve defenses that you're going to raise in this case. And there is a potential, we'll talk about it in, a, in the next slide, of failing to raise a defense is waiver of that defense. So you want to be very proactive about this. Also, best practice is that you can always amend your denial statements and your pre-hearing conference statements as additional um, information develops. So that's something important. Generally speaking, my office is going to be trying to identify and contact and prepare witnesses as soon as possible, as soon as we know a case is going to be controverted. We don't want to lose that opportunity. Now, more than 300,000 cases are filed each year in the New York Workers' Compensation Courts. So statistically, about 9% of those are denied. Now, in my practice, about 30% of my cases are denied. Okay? And that's simply because I'm a litigator and I see a higher percentage of denied cases. So if your uh, percentage of denials is a little higher, that's okay. Again, you have to look at what is your risk population and what's going on. I can also tell you that the board certainly audits carriers uh, for what is the percentage of denials and then what happened with those denials. Were they sustained? So this is a moment uh, to be very thoughtful and careful. All right. Parts of a denial, and in our handout materials, there's uh, parts of a denial or the, some exemplars of that. Uh, the Freud Shroy is the most important and pivotal point of that denial document. Why? It's because that is where the employer or carrier is laying out, here are the defenses I am raising in this case. What's going to happen next is the case is going to go to a pre-hearing conference, and all parties need to file a pre-hearing conference statement called the PH-16.2. Now, once they go to that pre-hearing conference, it may or may not go on what's called the rocket docket. That's called the expedited uh, hearing calendar. So, uh, all denied cases get a pre-hearing conference, uh, but some get put on the rocket docket and some do not. Now, according to the rule, and it is rule 300.38, some cases should never be put on the expedited hearing calendar. Should never be put on the expedited hearing calendar. I want to give you some examples. Number one, a death case. Death claims should not be handled in an expedited fashion. Number two, occupational or complex uh, etiology cases, cases in which uh, we're not talking about a simple traumatic slip and fell and I hurt my back. We're talking about I was exposed to a specific chemical over a long period of years because of the nature of my employment, and that has led to a very specific type of cancer or uh, cumulative injury. Okay, those kinds of cases are more complex and they should not be put on an expedited calendar. And that's important, right? Because when, particularly when you have cases that involve issues of apportionment or successive liability, none of those cases are right for the expedited calendar. But of course, you're gonna see that the courts and your adversary are going to wanna put everything they can on the expedited hearing calendar. And the reason for that is because once it's on the expedited hearing calendar, the time from uh, having that initial conference with the judge to getting a final written decision is 60 days. Okay, so that's, and that includes, by the way, all your discovery, all your testimony, all your depositions, everything. Uh, that's a very short amount of time. And as you know, when you're defending a complex case, uh, the shorter the amount of time you have to prepare and present your defenses, that's, that does not inure to the benefit of the employer or the carrier. So that's something to be very thoughtful. Again, what can happen at a pre-hearing conference is completely um, determined by what's in the rules. So best practice 
is supposed to, is to be very uh, uh, conversant in the rules. Uh, if this is something that you're not uh, comfortable with, uh, take a look at chapter one of my handbook, which again can be downloaded right from our website. So deadlines in these cases. From notice of indexing, the client, meaning the employer or carrier, has 25 days to file their first report of injury denial type or subsequent report of injury denial type. If they fail to file this on time, they may waive specific defenses. And those defenses are outlined in the statute, section 25.2b, which says you may waive your right to raise employer or employee relationship, that the injury ever even occurred, or that the injury occurred in the course of employment. Now, these are very significant jurisdictional defenses. Imagine that you fail to file a piece of paper on time, or sorry, EDI, and because of that, this person is going to be deemed to be your employee. Again, that's a jurisdictional waiver based on failure to file. That's crazy, and that's a real gotcha, so be mindful about that. What happens next? The board is going to schedule that pre-hearing conference. The, the idea of the pre-hearing conference is that all the parties get together and explain to the judge of compensation, here's the proofs that we intend to produce, and judge, well, after you hear all these proofs, you're going to agree with us, this is not a compensable case. All right, now. Uh, you've got to file this pre-hearing conference statement 10 days before the pre-hearing conference, which is going to be set by the court. What happens if you fail to file your pre-hearing conference statement? Guess what? You may waive all your defenses, and it sets that right in the rules. So that's something to be very mindful of. Now, entertainingly, what happens if claimant's attorney fails to file their pre-hearing conference statement? And before you say, oh, nothing, Greg, probably nothing, the answer is they can't get a fee in the case. So even if they win, they don't get a fee. Guess what? That's a powerful leverage over claimant's counsel if they've failed to raise, or sorry, failed to provide you with the pre-hearing conference statement on time 10 days prior. You can argue, judge, that's cool. Even if they win, they don't get a fee. Guess what? That's a party that might be willing to settle, right? That might be your leverage towards settlement. So be mindful about that. All right. What kind of defenses can we raise? Well, there's a whole series of codes uh, that correspond to specific legal defenses that need to be raised on this first report of injury or subsequent report of injury. And as you can see here in the example, if we're saying the injury did not occur in the course of employment, so we raise these very specific defenses, no compensable accident, horseplay, willful intent to injure themselves, not within the workers' compensation law def definition of accident, on the First report of injury, or FROI, you're actually going to put in 1A, 1B, 1C, and 1D. And as you go through, and I can give you some examples, but look, if you look at my handbook, chapters 5 and chapter 6 have a description of what all these codes are and which ones apply and in what scenarios. But for each different type of defense we're going to raise, there are specific codes that you're going to want to uh, put into that first report of injury. So, for example, you're arguing there's no compensable accident. Literally, like, this did not happen, okay? The codes would be 1D, 1F, 1L. And, again, I, you could go through all the different types of defenses, but as you can see, and what I'm trying to demonstrate here, is that there are a lot of these little codes. I think there's over 20 of them, and they all have a corresponding um, specific legal defense that you are raising, okay? Now, for most clients, um, they are able to complete their first report of injuries or subsequent report of injury denial types and put in the correct codes. Okay, that's, that's something that they're typically able to do. 
Uh, but a lot of them want to run it by us and have a lawyer sign off on, hey, did I raise all the correct defenses? Okay. And by the way, if you're listening to this in podcast, uh, I'm just clicking, clipping right now through about five or six or seven or eight slides here with lists of all the different defenses that are raised and what the corresponding codes are. But again, uh, the reference material for all that is found in our handbook. So let's look at a general example here. The general example of this is not my employee. What, what do we need to do? First, the, co the employer or the carrier, whoever's filing the first report of injury, has to put in the correct dispute code, which is, hey, not my employee, the correct dispute code is 3A, no employer slash employee relationship. Maybe we're arguing the person's an independent contractor. Now we, as your attorneys, have to know, what is the defense of independent contractor? What kind of proofs am I gonna have to show? And what is the legal standard, right? And our thought immediately upon helping you uh, preserve that defense is, okay, who am I going to produce a trial? Who am I going to uh, bring in to demonstrate that this claimant is an independent contractor? Because remember, remember those five presumptions that we talked about in the very beginning of this presentation? Simply filing a workers' compensation claim is under uh, Section 21, the first presumption. It's you file the workers' comp claim, you have a valid claim. So we have to... Uh, take on the burden of disproving those allegations, okay? That's on us. All right, now, in the, the Drake von Train case that we're using as our exemplar, if you look at the example materials, we asserted a whole bunch of defenses in that case. 1D, 2C, 2D, 2E, 1L. And we argued that these presumptions do not apply. And so if you look on our first report of dispute, you'll see that's what we did it. But the truth is, we actually denied this case. We, those are sort of placeholder defenses. And the actual uh, uh, defense is that this really did not happen at work. Now, remember the story uh, that he told us. I'm sorry, that, he, that uh, we actually had covert surveillance that disputes the injuries. Remember the story that he said he hurt his left shoulder and, and left bicep at work. And here we have a video that shows him able to use his left shoulder and bicep in some other employment that he has. And here he is using his left left shoulder and his left arm, and I'm hoping that you can see that. And wait, what's this? Uh, while he was under covert surveillance, it looks like now he's doing pull-ups on the street and able to uh, certainly use his left arm and left biceps. And as this covert surveillance progressed, we were able to see even more things that he was doing. And here you can see him doing inverted pull-ups and really seems to be completely unimpaired. And I think as the video progresses, we're able to catch him doing even more and more of his personal workout, uh, definitely making time for some self-care, now doing push-ups on the street. So for all of these reasons, uh, we now have some wonderful covert surveillance which refutes the claimant's allegation and in fact shows that he's able to do uh, things that he claims that he's not able to do. So great reasoning here to dispute this case. So how do we advocate for this at trial? And again, remember, we're thinking about the context of here's here's the foundation of this case and it's been brought forward and how do we topple it and what are the procedures in place? Um, we're disputing that the injuries are even work-related, right? Really because we don't think they exist, okay? And our goal here is to present evidence of fraud and to raise fraud at the pre-hearing conference. And our action here, what we would do is prepare to present these proofs at trial. We would have to inform the court in advance uh, that we would uh, be presenting some uh, surveillance video and an investigator. Now, in this jurisdiction, we do not have to uh, reveal uh, or provide copies of the surveillance 
until after the claimant testifies. So the order of proofs here would be that the uh, claimant would testify first, and then we'd be able to confront them with these videos, and either, either be able to explain it away or not. And uh, then we would have uh, an opportunity for the judge to make a decision on whether or not these matters should be compensable or not. COVID cases, just a reminder, um, if they are specific class of claims, there is no presumption in New York that these are compensable. The board has applied its own standard, which they call prevalence. There is, uh, we've taken this issue to the appellate division and the appellate division has not clarified the prevalence standard. Uh, they've made some procedural decisions that didn't change this, uh, the correct standard. And we continue to recommend disputing and litigating most COVID-19 cases. So our COVID guidance has never changed. Um, all right, let's talk about a different class of claims now. Let's talk about occupational exposure claims. What is occupational disease? Well, in the original statute, as it was written 100 years ago, uh, they listed out all the potential occupational diseases and silicosis and asbestosis and miner's lung and all sorts of conditions and concerns with very specific uh, uh, etiologies. Uh, well, that's been changed, and now Section 3 just says any and all diseases, meaning anything can be an occupational disease. What kind of typical exposure claims do we see? Well, you're going to see... A lot of hearing loss cases, respiratory inhalation injuries, orthopedic repetitive use injuries or cumulative injuries, uh, and of course your carpal and cubital tundrums, those types of things. Now there is a limit on that, on these. So even where the claimant is able to produce medical documents, which says that the uh, conditions of the employment cause the alleged occupational condition, they have to also demonstrate something unique to the employment, something unique or specific to the employment that is causing the condition. Um, and so uh, it, the burden is on the claimant to demonstrate that there's something peculiar, distinct, or unique. There's also a time limitation on occupational exposure claims in that the claimant must bring these claims within two years of the date they knew or should have known that disease was due to the nature of the employment. So this essentially means the statute of limitations begins whenever the claimant says it does. Uh, however, this can be defeated by going through the medical records and looking back and finding instances where the claimant complained about the condition earlier uh, and then utilizing that to establish an initial date. So when you're thinking about whether or not an occupational exposure claim is likely to be compensable or not, the things that you're going to look for is some kind of unique or distinct risk associated with a specific employment and something that's not shared with the general population. And so this is the reason why, for example, exposures to heat or cold is not uh, considered an occupational risk. Everyone in life is exposed to heat and cold. Okay. Other things like walking, standing, going up and down stairs. Everyone has to walk. Everyone has to stand. Everyone has to sit. None of those things are peculiar or distinct. Uh, other things, even things like sunburn, right? A sunburn would not be compensable because even though you're a lifeguard, just about everyone's exposed to the sun. So that really, there's nothing specific, unique, or peculiar uh, that exposes you to this one sun that nobody else is exposed to. And by the way, this is also the reasoning as to why a COVID-19 claim would not be compensable, right? If it's truly a pandemic and everyone's going to be exposed to it, uh, that's the challenge as to why these conditions should not be compensable, right? Now, not likely to be compensable uh, are things like can't point to anything specific in the employment, uh, nothing that is closely related, there's nothing distinct or brought untimely. 
Now, New York also has this other concept, which is date of disablement concept. And under Section 42, the board may determine the date of disablement to be any of the following things. The date the last the person last worked or was last exposed to the alleged um, disabling uh, feature of the environment or occupation, the date they first had medical treatment, the date they had knowledge of their loss, or the date they first lost from work. So this could result in dates of disablement that could vary, right? I mean, if someone's retired 15 years ago and now brings a workers' compensation claim, uh, if the date of disablement is the date of knowledge, which might be when they filed their workers' comp claim, uh, there might be a very short period of benefits that would be due to them. But if the date of disablement is set all the way back as the last time they worked at the employment, then the amount of benefits might be significantly more. So that's something to be mindful of. This is definitely gamed. How do you defend occupational exposure claims? What are we looking for? What are we specifically thinking about? Well, the focus should always be on facts. Uh, oftentimes we'll have better command of the facts and access to the facts than our, our adversary. And, and uh, presumably things provided by the employer are going to be very useful. Um, now, I'm looking for things like air quality reports, studies, industrial hygiene reports, ash sampling, mitigation procedures and equipment, the use of protective equipment. How about all the certifications the person had on using their mask properly or using their protective gloves or all those other things that we've had in our employment? Um, how about anything that's like environmental testing, um, NIOSH testing, National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health testing, OSHA testing, uh, recorded OSHA incidents that show that there was mitigation in place. Um, how about media or marketing accounts? Um, I have one of my clients that um, had an environmental claim brought against them, an exposure claim. And we were able to demonstrate that not only was there no exposure inside the plant, but they had actually won awards that the that the air quality inside the plant was actually uh, deemed to be better than the air quality in the community right outside the plant. In other words, they actually won a board that said the air quality in this plant has less particulates and soot and contaminants in it than the the, the fresh air, what you call fresh air, outside of the plant. Now, uh, that employer was located in New Jersey, so insert your hilarious New Jersey joke here, uh, but that's just something to be mindful about. Uh, awards, certifications, ergonomic studies, any of that stuff is going to be really useful for us in defending an occupational exposure claim. And I would um, say, hey, look for any testing results, attack on the dates, right? So the dates are going to be something that we're going to be able to utilize to defend these cases fully and adequately and well. Um, now, if you want more on this or need more on this, check out Chapter 12 in my handbook because there's a lot of material about this. So what are we trying to do? when we're defending an occupational exposure claim. Well, the first thing I want to do is I want to get this thing off the rocket docket. Remember I said earlier that there's two classes of cases which are really not right for an expedited proceeding. The first one is a death case, and the second one are these occupational exposure cases. There's going to be more complex uh, causation issues. There's going to be maybe more witnesses, more documents, more information we're going to have to accumulate. And so for all those reasons, we're going to want to dispute that, and we're going to want to uh, challenge this. Also, you're going to want to conduct complete medical discovery in your uh, occupational exposure claims, because lots of little gems emerge when you start looking into this person's um, uh, treatment record. And of course, we're going to want to consider apportionment. Hey, maybe I did employ this person in a dangerous environment that exposed them to some contaminant which led to an inhalation injury. Like, maybe that's possible. Uh, but who else employed them in that same condition? So take a look at apportionment. And remember, apportionment can be applied to current joint employers or it could be successive in nature. 
we're almost always looking for success of apportionment, and the reason for that is because we could point the finger back at some prior period, hopefully, of, of conditions that we can try to get a contribution towards any award. Now, there is lots of case law that says awards should be apportioned against all the employers who cause the harm. So, you know, this is not, sometimes the judges push back and they say, what are you, Mr. Lawless, you're going on a fishing expedition. You're looking back at records from 10 years ago. It was, say, Judge, the law commands me to do this. I have to do this, and there's really good reasons to do it. Um, now, if there's only one employment, obviously apportionment's not going to apply. Uh, but where there is uh, all of the exposure during one period of employment and then the culmination or the a manifestation of the condition in a later employment, well, it's going to be extremely useful for us to do the investigation into this. Also, be mindful about successive accidents or injuries, because apportionment does not simply apply to occupational exposure claims. There could be cases in which the claimant had specific traumatic losses, and uh, are those contributed to their overall disability. Uh, now, I'll tell you that um, apportionment can be made any way the judge sees fit and based on the medicals in the case. Um, but I would argue uh, that you, every practitioner should be familiar with Section 44, which is really the section which talks about how occupational disease and particularly things like loss of hearing are, are going to be established. So uh, those are the things you want to be thinking about when you're considering, hey, what should I raise in my defense and how am I going to reduce this exposure? All right, let's move on to my last topic, which is my favorite topic because it seems like, oh, Greg, average weekly wage is so boring. This is so easy, right? Whoa, this can have a huge impact on your case. Average weekly wage is going to determine the benefit rates that the claimant is uh, entitled to. So the typical weekly benefit is two-thirds times the average weekly wage and then reduced by the percentage of actual disability. Simple enough. Okay, that's going to uh, get to how much weekly uh, benefit the person receives. And even though this seems quite simple, and what I've just told you, hey, just take two-thirds of the average weekly wage and multiply that by the percentage of disability. And, oh, by the way, there's maximums and minimums. Okay, it's uh, simple, right? Well, it's not. I wish it was that simple, and it's not, unfortunately. And that's because uh, New York has multiple ways that wages can be calculated. And sometimes we're using sources to calculate those wages, which are better or worse than other sources. So uh, New York helpfully has, because, you know, everyone knows the New York Workers' Comp Board loves forms, and they have a specific form for recording wages. It's called the C240 wage statement. And on this uh, document, uh, the employer is supposed to put down the total earnings, the length of time the person has been employed, and the typical work week for that employee. And there's an exemplar in your handout materials today. Now, the C240 wage statement, that's a great source of information. I like the C240 wage statement. Another thing I like is employee, employer payroll records or similar worker records it, where the person has a lengthy period of employment or the dispute is how much they were paid in our year of employment, right? Think about a successive occupational exposure claim. I'm going to go and get a SS7050 release from the claimant and obtain a Social Security earnings statement. So that's how I can go back in time. Now, bad sources of wage information are going to be basically anything provided to me by the employee, particularly employee pay stubs. I've seen everything because I've been at this for over 20 years. Um, cash tips. All of a sudden, this person was receiving all these cash tips that they never reported. So cash tips that have not been reported and you haven't paid taxes on, those don't count. Uh, and tax returns because, you know, you have the opportunity to write anything you want on the tax return. And if you overstate your income, the federal government does not get angry at you, 
and in fact gives you time up to three years to go back and correct your prior returns. So you could uh, claim that you made a million dollars this year and the government's very happy to hear that because they can get the taxes on that, but then you have up to three years to go back and change that back to whatever your, the correct uh, wages was. So do not ever use a tax return to determine someone's wages. So the law approves of multiple ways of calculating someone's average weekly wages. The first is they can just take we can just simply take the amount they actually were paid and divide it by the length of time they actually worked for us and use that. I call this the straight division method, right? Because you're just using division. You learn it in third grade and it still applies and it still works. Um, next, um, you can come up with a hypothetical average weekly wage, first by calculating a hypothetical average daily wage and then multiplying that by a hypothetical number of days in a work year. This is called the multiplier method. And the board loves this method, and so do claimants' attorneys, because it's always going to result in a higher average weekly wage. And the last thing you can do is, if you don't have great wage information, for example, the claimant only worked for you for one week or one day or one hour, you can use another employee who has a similar employment. So you're typically going to be looking at same geographic location and same job title. Okay. All of these methods are specifically allowed under Section 14 of the Workers' Compensation Statute. So let's do some examples, uh, or let's talk about some rules. My rule is I generally think the straight division method is the fairest for everybody. And by the way, we're trying to get to the fair, correct wage, not the lowest wage or the highest wage. Straight division is very fair. But sometimes you can't do it because you don't have that many, a great long period of time for wages. You only have a couple days or a couple of hours or a couple of weeks. Uh, then you can use one of two different methods. You can use that hypothetical multiplier method or you could use a similar worker method. Okay, the board allows for either. Straight division method. If you look at the C240 wage statement that I've provided to you in today's handouts, uh, the total earnings simply divided by the length of time employed results in an average weekly wage of $804.25 per week. If you use the multiplier, the same person, same wage statement, $37,800 in total earnings, work 225 days, using a multiplier, you're going to come up with a much higher annual wage and a higher average weekly wage of $840. Finally, using a similar worker, well, unfortunately, our similar worker has a much higher average weekly wage. He's been working at the employer for a lot, much longer period of time. You come up with a dramatically higher average weekly wage. So using the exact same claimant, and just depending on which method you use to calculate average weekly wage, the lesson learned here is that you could really have a wide variation in what kind of average weekly wage that the claimant actually ends up with. And that's going to be the amount of money that pays them over the lifetime of this claim. So just be very mindful that average weekly wage is not as straightforward as it always seems. All right, what about concurrent employments? The answer is, this is or fairness. If they're losing income at concurrent employments uh, in New York, you simply sum up all of the concurrent employments and utilize that to uh, demonstrate what the person's average weekly wage should have been. That's just fair. Same thing for minors. Um, New York has a rule about minors. If someone's under 25 years of age, it is presumed that it should they have continued in that profession, they would have earned more money. And so in establishing their permanent benefit rate, you can take that uh, age into account and arrive at a higher average weekly wage, 10%, 15%, maybe 
20% higher. Uh, not generally much higher than that, though. The maximums and minimums uh, change all the time. Every year they change, and now they're changing uh, twice a year. Uh, our current maximum is $1,145.43, and our minimum has now changed as of January 1st to $275 per week. Next January 1st, it will change to $325 per week, and after that, it will be pegged to one-fifth of state average weekly wage. Uh, so just to put that in perspective, um, if it was at one-fifth of state average weekly wage today, it would be approximately $343 per week, which is more than double what it was eight days ago. So just put that in some perspective. Um, some red flags and thoughts about um, average weekly wage. Uh, you're going to have some challenges in cases where the claimant's only worked for a very short period of time or has worked in non-standard um, sort of calendar, you know, your part-time employees, people who work less than four days a week. Um, be mindful about wage expectancy. It can have an impact on your case if your case involves minors. And, of course, uh, concurrent employments. If the employee has concurrent employments, it is our job to um, reimburse them for everything they're losing from all the employments. But be mindful, because the, the example that we just went through, the Drake Von Train case, uh, that gentleman was still doing his concurrent employment, and we caught him on surveillance uh, with that behavior. So be mindful about that. Some takeaways, let's be decisive in our cases. We want to decide early to accept or deny. You can always withdraw a denial. It's statistically unlikely an accepted without prejudice case will ultimately move into denial status and be sustained. So my advice is typically raise withdrawals, uh, sorry, raise denials early. You can always withdraw them. Occupationals should be defended and really should be focusing on facts when we defend those. And the last big takeaway from today is let's not concede on average weekly wage. Argue, make your best point, look for the fairest average weekly wage. All right, I'm hoping this was a useful overview and thank you for those of us who um, had some uh, issues in the beginning with my audio it was still looping and I don't understand exactly why uh, okay I'm coming in through here and I see okay someone says okay there was a slight echo but not so bad um, taking a look through to see if any questions are coming through um, does anyone have any questions but you can type them in now and while you do that um, okay, Tara says, Greg, is the January 23rd webinar virtual? Yeah, it, it could be. So uh, that code that I put up on the screen, and Tara, I can email to you after this as well, um, enables you to attend via GoToWebinar. But if you want to come to our office, we are running it in our New Jersey headquarters, uh, and you're welcome to join us uh, there. Um, so you're absolutely welcome to come in person. We do have a number of clients coming in person uh, to that seminar on, and it's, and it's four days and it covers all of these topics. Um, other things to learn, join our email newsletter. You can find it on our website, uh, podcasts on our website, and you can subscribe to them. And I always encourage people to check out Christian Seesaw's podcast. It's called Third Fridays. It really is uh, the next level of what we're doing. Um, if you don't mind, I would love to receive a evaluation as to how this seminar or this webinar went. Uh, you can see this year we've got a slightly different format for our webinars, and we are trying to make them as useful as possible for attendees. So if you, if you have, take a moment to fill out the post-instruction evaluation form. 
Really appreciate getting your feedback about that uh, and uh, any comments that you have are always welcome. All right, I hope everybody has, has their new year off to a great start. We're off to a great start in this webinar. We have a lot of attendees uh, jumping in today, so thanks for joining us. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking to you today, and I hope everybody has a great rest of your week.